Hello everyone, I'm Sterling Kantav, the Engagement, Equity, and Inclusion Associate here at Children's Health Watch. Welcome to part two of our Pathways to Equity, Reflect, Research, and Respond Equity series. This episode, titled Children's Health Watch, Advancing Research to Transform Policy, focuses on our current timely research and efforts to advance equity, including survey modernization, our COVID study, and democratizing data project, and our hopes for the future of health equity for children and families. Thank you so much for joining us today for our second Pathways to Equity podcast. With me today is an illustrious panel who will introduce themselves in just a second. I'm Sterling Kantav, the Engagement, Equity, and Inclusion Associate here at Children's Health Watch. As many listeners know, our first podcast was around the origins of Children's Health Watch and how we came to this work. And today we're going to be discussing the research behind the work that we do. Uh, well, People take a minute just to introduce themselves and what site you're from. And um, I think it would be great also if you could tell the audience a little bit about your specialty. Thank you, Sterling. I'm uh, Eddie Ochoa. I'm a general pediatrician and the site principal investigator for the Little Rock site in Arkansas. We do our work in the emergency department at Arkansas Children's Hospital. And I'm a professor of pediatrics in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Hi, thanks, Eddie. And I'm Felice Lee Sherbin. I'm the site principal investigator in Philadelphia. I'm an epidemiologist. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the Dornsife School of Public Health at Drexel University. But we our site data collection in Philadelphia is at St. Christopher's Hospital for Children. Hi, uh, I'm Dr. Ana Poblacion. I'm a research scientist and director of multi-site operations with Children's Health Watch. I'm also a professor of pediatrics uh, at the Department of Pediatrics in the uh, School of Medicine at Boston University. And I'm a nutritionist by training. Hello, everybody. I'm Irma Cardenas. I'm the site coordinator for the Little Rock, Arkansas site. I work with Dr. Ochoa at Arkansas Children's Hospital. My background is in public health and um, community health, health promotion, and community engagement. Hello, everyone. My name is Maureen Black. I'm the principal investigator emeritus um, at the Maryland site at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore. My training is in psychology, and my specialties, the areas that I work in, are nutrition and early child development. I'm also a, a distinguished fellow at RTI International, which is a large nonprofit research organization headquartered in North Carolina. At Maryland, we have collected information related to Children's Health Watch in both our emergency department and our primary care site. We serve a large urban population in Baltimore. Great, thank you, Maureen, and thank all of you. Um, Felice, let's start things off with you. You joined Children's Health Watch in 2019. What would you say attracted you to Children's Health Watch, and what do you think is unique about the organization? That's a good question, Marilyn, <laughs> thanks. Um, I think the shortest way I can put it is that Children's Health Watch always asks the right questions to get the right answers to support children and families. Mm. I think very often policymaking, whether that's at the local level or state or federal, feels really far removed from what 
children and families are experiencing. And the way I think about Children's Health Watch is I think, I think Children's Health Watch is really unique in serving as like a direct line between the everyday experiences of children and families and then the policies that affect those families. And I think opening that line of communication, that conduit between policy and families' experiences is incredibly important. And I was really excited and remain really excited and honored to be a part of that work. Others uh, sort of agree at their sites that there's that connection between like the, the policy work and what you're seeing on the ground at your sites. Thank you, Sarlin. You know, Felice, I can agree with you so much. One of the things that we have at all of our sites is the opportunity to work with families every day. So we have clinics in our sites where we see children who are often experiencing poor growth and maybe experiencing feeding problems. So it puts us face to face with the issues. And when we're dealing with helping families and working with families, you learn on the ground. I say that it keeps me honest. And the interventions that we can then ultimately work on not only apply to those families, but apply in the policy realm so that there are families in the future that are not having to experience the things that we're seeing. And so the connection is really the translation from clinical to policy back to clinical. That is so unique about Children's Health Watch. I think another unique feature about Children's Health Watch is how we tie equity to our work, including our research. And Eddie, um, what would you say, like how does our work advance equity? And how has our research moved the needle on policies or the perception of certain policies? Thank you, Sterling. I think that's a great question. I mean, all, all that we do is about equity because we are really looking at the effects of income inequality on families in all kinds of different ways. Um, and I think we've, we've all been through the experience now in the last 15 years of two very big events that have sort of shaken the ground and shown us really what can happen to a family that's already living on the edge of economic security, and that was the, the Great Recession and the pandemic. And so both of those two hits to children and families, I think we really uh, detected in our emergency departments and primary care clinics when we saw that children have poorer health outcomes because of things like food insecurity, housing insecurity, economic insecurity, energy insecurity, and really how all those things come into play with keeping a child healthy and developing on time. So I think our work advances equity just for the, for the very reason that we detect those inequities and then suggest the policy solutions to help them. Great. And Felice, um, Eddie mentioned uh, the pandemic. I know during the early part of the pandemic, you suggested that we launch a new longitudinal study to follow up with families we had interviewed before the pandemic. We did that and the Children's Health Watch COVID follow-up study was born. Um, what about the results surprised you and what role did equity or inequity play? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I think what was most surprising to me was just the sheer magnitude of the hardships that families were facing. I mean, and particularly <coughs> families with immigrant mothers. I think we we knew that the pandemic was having this really huge impact on all families, and that was a lot of our motivation in doing the COVID follow-up study to start with. But honestly, it was still shocking to me how much, as a country, 
we were still leaving families behind. And that came out really loud and clear in the surveys that we were doing with families. And I do have one example. So we found that overall, right, the families in the Children's Health Watch COVID survey were twice as likely during the pandemic as before Mm. to report having trouble paying their rent or mortgage on time. But then for families with immigrant mothers, it was twice as much on top of that. So these were really, I think, shocking statistics and findings. And it's so important that they be documented. To get to the equity part you were talking about, I think that much as we know that all families have been struggling, it's really also important to call out how much harder this has been on some families than others. Families of color, families with immigrant members. And I think it's easy to kind of brush that under the rug or not not own up to how much our policies that we as a country have in place are furthering these inequities and are really unjust to to the families that we say we're supporting. Oh, Maureen, your reaction to that? Uh, uh, Thank you so much. It's such an amazing conversation. I absolutely agree. The other element to it is that the, the pandemic hit everyone. And the focus, you know, as we tried to deal with the pandemic as a country, is t- certainly to look at school-aged children and adolescents, but these are babies. These are children very, very young. And so this is the time during very early brain development that for all children of that, uh, that age, regardless of the color of their skin or their background, that the uh, having adequate nutrition and adequate health and having the, the care that babies need, there has not been very much attention. So it's even more shocking that the uh, breadth of the pandemic is larger than you know, is often, often realized. So again, in terms of equity, to ensure that we think about children of all ages and families, regardless of their background or their color or other aspects of, of their being, that they should be recognized. And we as a country need to continue to address these issues. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, Maureen. And what you are saying also reminds me that another part of what makes Children's Health Watch so unique is that these very young babies, infants, are so (coughs) sensitive to changes in their environments, to policy, to crises like the pandemic. And I think that's why the the kind of the special sauce of Children's Health Watch's study design, where we're on the ground continually collecting information so that we're able to detect these really acute but really short-term effects on families rather than swooping in a year after the fact to ask families about their experiences a year ago. I think it's so important that we're, as you said, Maureen, on the ground right there with families asking about their experiences in real time time and doing it clinically as well so it's it again covers the uh, aspect yes I I think Felice you hit that right on the head because I think that one of the important things that we often forget is the kind of response that we get from families in the field Mm. when they're just being asked and I think particularly Mm. during the COVID longitudinal study that somebody actually called and checked in on them I think 
being asked and allowing somebody to tell their story of some hardships they're going goes a long way with maybe not complete mental health easiness, but some. And I think that families have that reaction to our questions, despite the fact that, you know, it might be long. I think families respond it because we are asking the right questions. Mm -hmm. That actually is a great segue um, into the question that I want to ask all of you. All of you work in different parts of the country, and can you talk a little bit about what has stood out to you or your staff in conducting the survey? Can you talk a little bit about what you hear from families at your site and, you know, what sort of drives the content of the survey or the work here at Children's Health Watch? Yeah, certainly. Well, I know that at our site at Little Rock, I mean, we have a lot of responses similar to what other sites nationally and families with small children are experiencing, things in areas of food nutrition, food insecurity, housing insecurity. But one of the things that uh, at our site we hear a lot more, and we've documented this, and in fact, we've had a special report on that, is a lot of the healthcare trade-offs that families in our state particularly have to make Mm. in terms of their everyday decisions for the well-being of themselves and their family. Could you provide like an example for the audience? Yes, prior to the pandemic, we began to see a trend at our site with more families responding to having to forego perhaps a medication purchase, a doctor's visit, uh, a dental visit, oral health being a very important aspect for any member of the family, can quickly put you out of you know conducting your responsibilities, going to work. Doing those kind of trade-offs for basic housing payments, energy payments, just food payments. And this was something that was very important for our side to document. And so we partnered up with some folks at the hospital to be able to generate a report to be able to get this information out, not only to our national audience, but also to our state audience and our state partners to be able to advocate for that particular issue. How about at the Philly site, the Philly's have you, did you notice anything or have you known your staff come to you and said, hey, we're noticing this um, when we speak to our families? Yeah, so I think um, as just as Irma was saying in Little Rock, it's, many of our families are experiencing similar hardships to the other sites. One thing that has really been coming out, I would say, is that we have been asking specifically about difficulties in paying for utilities and in access to water. And these are inequities that have been around for a long time. And Philadelphia is the poorest large city in the United States. But I think the COVID pandemic really brought to the fore how serious these problems are, how many families do not have running water or are in fear of having their water cut off how serious it is not to have reliable access to utilities, electricity. Mm -hmm. The digital divide was certainly a big part of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think it was these hardships that are incredibly difficult for families to manage and that really that they have been managing for years, but the, the pandemic really brought them to a fore. Eddie, you had a reaction to that? I think what uh, Felice just said really reminds me of of the way that we think of as as a society that we have supports that help families that are in need. 
But the reality that we hear from the families at our sites is the when they put a face to it, when they put a story behind it, we know that the that the penetration just is not the same. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. the the thing that's been kind of the most stark for me since my involvement in Children's Health Watch is that we really have a pretty big spectrum of states in our in our small cohort. You know, we've got Massachusetts, which probably has the most generous safety net benefits of any state in the country on one side, and probably Arkansas would be on the other side of that continuum with uh, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and Minneapolis being somewhere in between. But the reality, uh, in addition, is that all these things are different by state. So even if you have a program like SNAP or WIC, the way that those policies are applied and those rules and regulations are done by state is vastly different. And I think people don't understand how difficult it is for that immigrant mom who may not speak English (coughs) to go to the SNAP agency to apply, know what she's filling out, know the right answers to the questions and get the benefit that her family needs, even if that benefit is just for her children, not for her. So there, there are so many hurdles out there that I think we find out every day in our sites. Uh, and I think Anna can speak to that because of her role in Children's Health Watch is overseeing all the operations. Yeah, I just wanted to point out what Eddie just said, that uh, some policies vary state by state, but some policies are nationwide, like the child tax credit. And that happened in a time where our families were suffering from all these hardships and the money came right in. And what we saw, and one of uh, Children's Health Watch also conducted a study on the um, child tax credit, is that it decreased poverty by 50%. So we know there are policies out there that can help even when the, you know, our families are struggling the most. Let's stay on this topic about like the finances and the cost. You have led some unique work on about new measures and to think about new measures and the the cost or the toll that economic hardships take on our national finances. What are some of the ways Children's Health Watch contributes to building the evidence about economic hardships in the country at large? Thank you for that question. I want to piggyback on something Felice said a little uh, earlier, that Children's Health Watch has a history of robust data collection on families with diverse backgrounds, so 25 years to be more precise. And over time, that has allowed us to step into new territories, not only collecting data in our sites, but also using that data and merge that with other national data sets. Mm-hmm. And one of the areas that we explored with this merge of these two data sets is the validation of new measures and new methodologies. So in 2010, Dr. Maureen Black right here and her <laughs> colleagues at University of Maryland School of Medicine and the Children's Health Watch team validated a two-item food security screening tool that we dubbed Hunger Vital Sign. And the Hunger Vital Sign allows providers in clinical settings or research settings <coughs> to identify families at risk for food insecurity, which helped. Food insecurity often, we know, has an invisible condition to be visible nationwide. So once a household is identified as at risk for food insecurity, providers or researchers can propose a nutrition-related intervention that provide healthy food for all household members. And it also helps alleviate people's stress, which is really important, mm-hmm. with the perspective of having food to feed all members of that family, especially children and children in such a young, early age, as we collect data on families with children younger than four. Fast forward 10 years, in 2020, I led our Children's Health Watch team on the validation of a second food security measure that we are calling the abbreviated Child and Adult Food Security Survey, the ACAVS. 
And once a household with children is determined to be at risk for food insecurity, the only way to determine its level of severity, their low or very low food security, was to use a long survey called the Household Food Security Survey Module, which contains 18 questions. And in a clinical or research setting, that is a lot of questions to to be asking. So uh, our team validated this abbreviated food security survey with eight questions that is able to identify levels of food insecurity, uh, severity in adult and child in that household. And that is important because by knowing the level of severity of food insecurity, providers or researchers can better plan for a targeted intervention or a referral, as well as better evaluate their effects. And why is mitigating food insecurity so important? Because it is not only negatively impacting the physical and mental health of adults and children, but also it costs the healthcare and educational systems $180 billion per year, a billion with a B. Mm. And the cost analysis that Dr. Cook and PI in Boston that has unfortunately retired, but we miss him a lot, (laughs) and me is being used nationally and locally just to advance the conversation on food insecurity. So wouldn't it be better if we invest this money on families instead of spending it treating diseases or conditions attributable to food insecurity? And I think the answer is yes. All of us are obviously, Children's Health Watch is a national organization, but Maureen, you do um, a lot of work on the global health side of things. So one thing I wanted to ask is, you know, you've been very involved in promoting nurturing care for kids in low and middle income countries. Could you talk a little bit about how nurturing care applies to young kids here in the U.S. and the parallels between children's health and development in low and middle income countries and children in the U.S.? Thank you, Sterlin. I certainly appreciate the question. Let me take a minute and talk about what nurturing care is. Nurturing care basically came about or was the scientific basis of it occurred during a series of papers published in The Lancet about five or six years ago. And this followed the amazing success that we have had globally in child survival. So in 10 years, we've been able to reduce early child and infant mortality by greater than 60%. And we did that globally, often by basically low-tech measures, taking better care of women during their pregnancy and during delivery, and then shortly after delivery, so children's health. So we can do it as a, not just as a nation, but throughout the globe. Well, having children survive is wonderful, but what we need is for children to thrive. So what does it take to enable children to thrive? And again, the answer is easy, and it's something that we all know. It's just a matter of putting it together. So the five things that children need to survive, and that's children whether they're in Boston or Baltimore or Bangladesh or Biafra or wherever they are, is they need good health care. So they need access to health care. Okay, they need good nutrition. So they need access to not only healthy food, but the delivery of, of healthy food, how you learn to eat, when you learn to eat, and when you learn not to eat. Okay, that's simple. They need protection. 
So protection means they need stability in their households. They need protection from violence. So there should not be violence within their home or outside of their home. That's absolutely clear. They need opportunities for learning. So that means someone talking to them, someone playing with them. Mm -hmm. Children learn by watching and playing. And so the last thing that they need are relationships. When we talk about equity, we all need relationships. We mm -hmm. cannot do it alone. So those five things comprise a system. So as a system, it means you need them all. And if one of them goes awry, they all go awry. And we see that in our families, and we should see it a little stronger in our policies. So that if we fix one policy, that's great, but we need it in all of them. So nurturing care has now been adopted by the World Health Organization, by UNICEF, by the World Bank, by the Inter-American Development Bank, and what they have been doing is trying to promote nurturing care within low and middle income countries. So it means making investments in these areas and coordinating these areas. Now, those low and middle income countries, what does that have to do with the US? This concept is a uniform concept. Mm -hmm. And again, it applies to our children and whether whatever color they are, whatever background they have, whatever language they speak, whether they're from families that are wealthy or not wealthy, those the principles of it are uniform. The application of it depends on where you are and it varies by cultures. So it's been there's been a tremendous amount of interest in low and middle income countries, less attention in the US. But I think we at Children's Health Watch recognize that these are issues that apply to all of our all of our children and particularly if we're interested in equity. And what we've shown by this is that children who have experienced adverse circumstances early in life, if you intervene, and that's under age three, you can alter the trajectories so that we can enable kids to thrive, to reach their developmental potential, and then you're off and running. You're saving healthcare costs. And at the end of the day, you're creating adults who have the health, who have the nutrition, who have the cognition, who have the relationships and caring and grit to take care of all of us. You make it sound so simple. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's just it's to solve the world's problems. Just that air. Well, what else could we do? <laughs> does that frustrate any of you that the fact, like the answer is pretty simple, but it's not happening? And why do you think that is? I'll, I'll start, and I know that my colleagues have answers. You know, it's these are things that you could ask your grandmother, and she would agree or come up with or articulate. They're not easy, and we get into our specialty silos. So we have a health system, and the health system can be very powerful and works well, and then we have an educational system, and the educational system can work, but putting them together and making them one system and doing it in a transparent way and in a longitudinal way that we know what happens very early in life that if you have adversities very early in life then th th those are th that can be a drain as you go it can be challenging as you go and certainly things we are interested in food insecurity and how to prevent it because early in life 
you're paying for it and paying for it. So th there's the administrative aspect to try to put things together instead of thinking about fiefdoms or silos throughout. I, I just wanted to pick up on Maureen's comments on investments because I think the things are simple on the one hand and on the other hand, the investments in them are not simple. And I think that's where our, our country especially gets hung up with those things. And I think what our work sh has shown over the 25 years of its time is that if you do invest in a robust food safety system, then you can mitigate the effects of food insecurity. If you invest in a robust economic system and you do things like earned income tax credits or the child tax credit that was done during the pandemic, you can make a big difference. I think our, especially in Boston, our work helped the Massachusetts legislature improve the state's earned income tax credit twice. And it's frustrating that in the state that I come from, Arkansas, we don't have a state earned income tax credit. Knocking on the door for many years now, but still don't have it. Minnesota is, you know, sort of poised to do it next. And so we, we do see that these investments are very, very important because when those things go awry, like Maureen said, you really need a safety net underneath it to help those families that are struggling through those situations. And I know that site by site, we see, we see this all the time. I think that's such a good point, Eddie. And I think it really points to there's a disjointedness between systems, mm -hmm. but also there's such a priority to the short term. So I think the way you're talking about investments and Maureen as well is so important. And that's where also the research that Anna has been leading, looking at the true long-term costs, even in dollar amounts okay. of not fixing some of these systems is so important. And I think on a political or a budgeting level, it can be hard sometimes to make that argument, even though intuitively we all know it's true that it may cost a little bit now but it will be so worth it long term in terms of um, productivity and happiness and even sheer survival of our children and, and of our country. And I think that's so important, particularly in a state like ours, which kind of brings to the table the representation of thousands and millions of families and children that are also experiencing maybe not those ideal environment for some of the policies and the programs, experiencing a lot more silos and not interconnection inter in, in between systems. I think our community, our state, despite some of those challenges, has had some wins in terms of food security, which has improved throughout the whole history of Children's Health Watch. Unfortunately, through the pandemic, had a little bit of a downturn, but the evidence was there to be able to influence the right folks in the state. So uh, I think that speaks to the importance of the work that we do, not only for informing large policy national systems, but even community partners, policy at our hospital level, policy at our nonprofit sector in each of our areas, policy definitely at our state level, but also empowering the people that we interview just by asking them the questions, we get to do a really fast on-site education about why we're doing this, because we're trying to affect policy. And I think that piques maybe their interest and their curiosity about, oh, what is going on with that in my state? So I think we affect policy from the individual all the way to the national level. That, you know, Irma, you've made an amazing point, and that is to enable the voices of the families who are experiencing things mm -hmm. to be amplified. Mm -hmm. 
and sometimes it's amplified by their directly by their voice and we've had examples of that over the years of uh, families speaking for themselves they've also enabled us to uh, to take what they've said and they've told us and to mm -hmm. amplify it and when you have the voices coming from the the people who are experiencing it then it's much more powerful and that's really where we're going to think of issues of equity to be able to have those families there. I just wanted to note that I know, I think the families also know that we are advocating for them because our model is to uh, ask questions once, <coughs> right? But that we have in our sample families that have been interviewed twice and they actually say yes when we invite them again to speak, right? And during the COVID pandemic, which is when we launched our COVID study, which is a longitudinal study, meaning that we interview them in the past and we ask them again, would you like to be part of it? Because we know that your voice is being correctly used to advance policies. And they actually said yes. So that to us means that not only we know that we are, you know, it's from Children's Health Watch to the families, but also families to Children's Health Watch. We work in the symbiosis of uh, helping each other. And one thing I was curious about is do people think location, where you are in the country, has a lot to do with what certain policies get passed. And Irma, since you're the site manager of our only southern <laughs> sort of uh, uh, site. Um, was can you speak to any regional differences or similarities you see in families' responses to the survey? And how does equity figure into that? Well, certainly. I, I think the families in Arkansas continue, like I said earlier, to express the challenges they have with just everyday needs for their family and for their children. Issues around housing are particular importance. We are the only state with not uh, renters' rights mm -hmm. bill. Again, another issue where we've been at the door several times, almost successfully uh, two or three years ago, but still needing to be able to pass that. So Arkansas, comparable to some of our other fellow sites, really has to, the families really live in an environment in the South that not only has a lot of challenges in terms, I mean, we're right in the Delta, so there's a lot of health, economic, social demographic situations that are going out there. So we really represent that whole geographical area of the country that is experiencing these challenges. It's not particular just to Arkansas. There's a whole section of the country that is experiencing these challenges. So we tend to be able to add that to our data set of those voices and those more on the edge families than uh, maybe some of our other fellow sites. I think Dr. Ochoa alluded to it early on about just the environment in terms of the state legislatures and some of the programs and some of the collaboration that goes. Some of our partners are just like way beyond on that. but. I think Arkansas, one of the things that it does show is uh, kind of the small successes and the small wins that we could have by just having community and community partners kind of try to bring. And also the role that hospitals can bring. Hospitals help, you know, institute some of these programs to help families at least when they come to their doors, mm -hmm. try to address a little bit of that. So hopefully 
we continue to try and change some hearts and hopes. But yeah, our area of the country has some challenges, but we continue to work on them. Keeping up the good fight, basically. <laughs> Since we've talked a little bit about you know, the reasons why we have investigated or looked into certain topics around health equity in our research. And one of the things I want to ask the entire panel is what are some of the urgent areas or gaps in our research that you want our team to explore in the next few years? I think one of the things that I think we really are going to have to put our thinking hats about is around climate change and how it's really going to be affecting. I think that we have a little bit of information, but that's going to become even more important, especially as we see some more of these catastrophic events that are similar to COVID and that are affecting, they're going to be affecting families like in in a very tragic, immense way. And so just being able to think through in the future of how do we have those assessments for those kind of emergency situations? And how do we use the data that we currently have to address what kind of effects climate change is having on families in terms of mobility? I mean, we know about our immigration. We know the kind of experience that our immigrants' families have. All of that is just going to be expanded sooner rather than later, I'm afraid. I I absolutely agree that the climate is a is uh, such an enormous issue for us. And I can think of many others. I'll mention one, and that is our situation related to childcare. So in Children's Health Watch, we have examined childcare and we have some new information that, stay tuned, will be available soon related to childcare. But this is, this is an enormous issue in our country in that we have more and more women who are in the workplace and the resources that we have for, particularly for young children, these are for the kids that we study. So these are children who are three and under, are abominable. We really do not have resources for very young children. And there are many other countries in our world that have far better examples than we do. So it's an issue that we as a, as a country should look into and understand more because it's such a critical time for young children to ensure that they get the nurturing care. It comes first and foremost from families, but what happens is that it gets accentuated and helped by communities and within communities, we have childcare. So I think that's something that you will see us in the future and beyond that, you will see Children's Health Watch dealing with childcare. At least you could talk about infrastructure. Our infrastructure, infrastructure and how that, I was thinking of the, the falling down of things like the highway. But there's an issue of water. We have places, you've mentioned water. There are places in uh, the state where I live where it's, there's not clean water. Yep, that's absolutely true. <laughs> and, we, and it's another area, I think, where we are all affected by yes. our failing infrastructure, but we are not all equally affected by our infrastructure. And I think what I was thinking while Irma and Maureen were giving your really excellent answers is that I would also like to see us lean even more into our research on racism 
and the effects, the leg both the legacy of historical racism and the ongoing effects of current racism, not just yeah. interpersonally but institutionally. Mm. And I think those are effects that continue to permeate everything else and to further create injustices and inequities in the effects of a failing infrastructure, in the way we as a nation allocate childcare to families, in which populations are gonna be more and less affected by climate change sooner and later. So I think it's really important that we continue to really explore the role of racism across these different issues. And I think we're really starting to dig into that with examining the effect of racism within those very institutions that should be helping families. Mm -hmm. You know, so looking at the experiences that people have when they go to the WIC office, when they go to DHS, when they go yep. apply for SNAP. We're, we're all, not even two months into this whole unwinding of the public health emergency. And in Arkansas, we already have thousands of children who have lost Medicaid coverage. Um, and so we're, we're trying to do what we can to help those families get back on. But we know already, not, you know, not a few weeks in, that the infrastructure that DHS has in Arkansas to deal with that just isn't there. And so there are, there are thousands of applications that have to be processed, and there's delays in processing the applications. So it's all these very administrative kind of, you know, basic building block sorts of things that when they crumble, just like a highway that might crumble because of fire, it's a big problem. And it has long lasting impacts and long lasting reach. Because when you need things like SNAP or Medicaid coverage, you need them now, not in two weeks or two months. Yeah. And I can finalize by saying economic mobility. Mm. I think that's something else that we have been exploring right now. You know, we have just uh, undergone uh, survey revisions and we added several modules that will have soon data to speak about. But economic mobility is something that we will need to address sooner rather than later. You know, minimum wages that are compatible with living costs of each of our cities and you keep yourself into that job and you grow in that job, so job growth. And that will help families bring money into that family so they can provide for them, at least for their basic needs. Yeah, I think in thinking about kind of jumping off of Felice's answer, it made me think of the importance also of the data that we recently started collecting on incarceration. And I think families and children who have an incarcerated parent have a very particular experience with racism, with economic mobility, with food insecurity. And we, right before the pandemic, we, re we added some questions. So I think that that's an area that is exciting yes. to really look into and see what have we learned now and what can we say on behalf of these families who experience this incarceration. I think we'll have some interesting things to say about it. So a lot of work ahead still. Yeah. <laughs> the next 25 years. You're ready. Yes. <laughs> With this crew, we're definitely ready. Yeah, definitely. I want to thank everyone for being here today. Again, Dr. Eddie Ochoa from our Little Rock site. 
Dr. Felice Lichervet from our Philadelphia site, Dr. Anna Poblacion from our Boston site, Irma Cardenas from our Little Rock site, and Dr. Maureen Black from our Baltimore site. Thank you all for being with us today and sharing your wisdom and your experience and knowledge with this audience. And we also want to thank our generous sponsors of this podcast as part of our equity series, uh, Marilyn Meyerhoff and Sam Feldman, for their generous support. Thank you all so very much. Thank you, Sarlin. Thank you so much for listening. We want to thank the late Marilyn Mayerhoff and Sam Feldman for their generous and ongoing support of our equity series in today's podcast. We also want to shout out Boston University staff for their assistance with producing it. If you enjoyed episode two, make sure to stay up to date on our website and keep a lookout for part three of our series, Children's Health Watch Policy Responses to Advanced Equity, coming soon. Children's Health Watch is committed to calling out policies and structures that exacerbate health and economic hardship inequities, particularly for families of immigrants and people of color. And we continue to advance inclusive, equitable policy solutions rooted in our cutting edge research. Children's Health Watch not only shares evidence, but diligently builds relationships with policymakers, advocates, community groups, and families to turn evidence into equitable policies that uplift and support not only those that need it the most, but all of us. So if you believe that equitable policies should be a given and not an exception, then please take this next important step and donate by going to childrenshealthwatch.org donate. We'll also drop a link in the show notes. You can be assured that your gift is spurring much-needed change. And don't just take our word for it. Listen to our distinguished advisory board member, Charlotte Golar-Ritchie, share why you should give to Children's Health Watch today. On the subject of support, today Children's Health Watch needs yours. I serve on the Children's Health Watch Advisory Board, and in that role, and also as a former state legislator, I've seen how valuable research and data are in shaping state and national policies, whether we're talking about expanding nutrition assistance or making improvements to the child tax credit or earned income tax credit or increasing access to affordable housing. These policies support the health and economic stability of families who need them most. This is the focus of Children's Health Watch, to get relevant, credible research and data into the hands of people who will make the right decisions, the decisions that directly impact the health and well-being of children and their families. But it costs money to produce accurate, reliable research and data. And as Children's Health Watch is holding this, their one and only fundraiser for the year, we have an opportunity to support this very impactful work. So if you believe that equitable policies should be a given and not an exception, then please take this next important step. Go to www.childrenshealthwatch.org donate and give as generously as you can today. Your gift will help in the effort to combat poverty and promote equity, and it will be wisely utilized and very much appreciated. Thank you.